Take your Bibles and let's go again to Titus. We're in Titus chapter 2 this morning. Titus chapter 2. This will be part 1 of two parts. We really could see verses 1 through 10 all as one section. But we're just going to deal with verses 1 through 5 this morning. Let's look at our text together and we'll back up. And read beginning in chapter 1, verse 16. And then we'll read all the way through chapter 2 and verse 12. Titus 1, verse 16. This is the word of God to his people. It says of the false teachers that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Therefore they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound or healthy doctrine. Now he's going to say what that means within a church family by highlighting five different groups. First he says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound or healthy in faith, sound in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. That is to be their nature. And so train the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, Titus urged the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us as believers. Bondservants then, last group, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing Not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For or because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and positively to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Let's ask for his help as we look at this passage together this morning. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes. You would open our ears to hear your words. Lord, you would help us to be honest, to be humble with ourselves, to recognize where we need to grow. There are many things presented here in these passages, in these verses for us, that we need help to continue to put on to continue to grow in as believers who are being changed by the truths of the gospel. So help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Titus's teaching is to be in direct contrast to the false teachers that we looked at in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1. Their lives and their doctrine contradict one another. They don't go together. They'll say one thing, but they're hypocrites. 
They claim to know God, but by their actions, their behavior, they deny him. Now, I want you to look back into our text in chapter 2, and I want you to see if you can locate three phrases that begin with the little words, the two words, so that. These are purpose statements that give reasons or purposes for why Paul is commanding what he commands. Can you find them? Look there at verse or chapter 2, verse 5. So that the word of God may not be reviled. Chapter 2, verse 8. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Chapter 2, verse 10. So that in everything, believers may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. These are important and guiding Phrases that help us understand we're not just putting on moral virtue like any religion might encourage us to do. There's clearly God-glorifying purposes for which we're to be changing and looking more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. What we'll see in this passage is that God's power is displayed through the church when sound teaching produces godly living. That's the goal. It's not to make our lives better. It's to glorify him. It's to recognize his power. It's to show forth what the gospel does in the hearts and lives of sinners. The behaviors that are emphasized for each group within the church all fall under and are motivated by God's grace. We see that in verses 11 and 12. The word for there at the beginning of verse 11 gives us the reason or the ground for why these things are to be appearing in our lives. The grace of God has appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. This passage, as we work through it, is going to call us again and again to ask ourselves, what difference is the gospel, the word of God, making in my life, in my beliefs, in my behavior? Is it changing me? If it's not, it's not because the word of God is not powerful. There's something else that's missing. Perhaps it's not that I don't hear the sound teaching, it's that I'm not embracing it. I'm not applying it. In this chapter of Titus, Paul emphasizes that good works are a necessary and natural result of believing sound doctrine. To be rescued from sin and death through faith in Jesus Christ, it must result in a life that displays self-control, that reflects God's grace. People who have been saved by that grace will be changed by it. That's what Paul will argue. Now the point isn't that you do these good things and then you get grace. No, God's grace and salvation has appeared That came first. Because I'm accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. That order is very, very important. And it's very, very motivating. This morning we'll work through this text identifying four main points beginning with Paul's instructions to Titus directly. First, sound doctrine must be the foundation for godly living. 
That's what Paul is going to tell Titus. That's what he's going to tell him to proclaim and teach and emphasize and apply to these congregations. Verse 1 begins with the conjunction, but. Paul says, but you. It's emphatic. There's a difference, a contrast. The word for teach here can mean simply speak. It includes both formal and informal speaking about these issues, these truths, this healthy doctrine. The command is to teach or to speak what is fitting with sound doctrine. What is helpful for God's people. This is given, this command is given directly to Titus, indirectly to all elders. And this is what God's people should be seeking to hear, both in their public proclamation as they gather like this for worship and as they privately speak amongst one another. Are we speaking sound words, truth? Now, what is sound teaching? And how do you know that you're hearing it? In this letter, it is teaching that encourages believers to live lives that look more and more like Jesus Christ. This is important for Paul to clarify in the pastoral epistles. So we read in 2 Timothy 3 that sound teaching is described in two ways, in two results. Paul says to to Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned. You've been taught good doctrine. Continue in that. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You trust them. It was your your mother and your grandmother. It was from me, Paul. These are faithful people that speak faithfully God's word. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus And then we hear that famous verse about the power of God's word. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And here's that second way that it works. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is sound teaching and how do you know that you're hearing it? I'll give you a simple test to know whether or not it's sound. Does It exalt Christ. Does it point you to him? Or does it exalt mankind? That's exactly the difference that Paul is pointing out here in Titus. Does it tell you that you have to do something to please God? And that you can please God in your own effort? Or does it show you what Christ has done for you and then says respond with obedience and faith? And self-control? Can it be authenticated by careful study of Scripture? Is it consistent with what the apostles teach in the New Testament? That's what we saw as we heard the Scriptures read this morning from Ephesians 4. Our faith is built on the teaching of the apostles and prophets. It isn't new. You know, there's often much misunderstanding of how, how doctrine and practice work together. We might wrongly conclude that doctrine is dry and boring. That it really doesn't make a practical difference in our daily lives. But the problem isn't with our doctrine. The problem isn't with doctrine itself. 
Consider just one example for a moment. In scripture, we learn that God is both all-knowing and everywhere present. How are those doctrines practical? If you kept your mind on those truths this week, how do you think that would affect your conversations with a close friend when you think no one else is listening? If you knew that God was all-knowing and everywhere present, would that change the way that you speak? How would that affect what you posted or looked at online? A.W. Tozer wrote that the most important thing about you is what you know about God. His point isn't just that you pile facts into your head, but that what you know about your God is supposed to change how you live. One author applied this theological conclusion this way, collectively, we will be shaped by our view of God in more ways than we know, for good and for ill. Our view of God limits and it launches. Our theology is our heart and soul because it shapes our worship, our identity, our mission, our behavior. Paul is affirming that God's truth is always immensely practical. Our need is to grow in meditating on it and applying it to our lives accurately and consistently. These truths aren't meant just to be coming into our head, but to making a difference in our lives throughout the week. Faithful, biblical teaching should always make a difference in our lives. Number two, sound doctrine produces godly living among older men. We're going to work through uh, the first three of the groups that Paul addresses here in verses 1 through 10. First in verse 2, older men. The word for older men here is a different word than Paul used when he's describing the elders back in chapter 1. Paul uses this word of himself in Philemon when he was around the age of 60. It's also used of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1. The word's referring to a man who has raised his own children who are now grown. Older men in the church are first to be sober-minded or restrained or temperate. The idea is that this man is to be able to exercise sound judgment in godly decision-making through godly priorities. This is not a man who's chasing the fleeting pleasures and benefits of this world. Second, he's to be dignified or honorable worthy of respect he's not to be frivolous or silly now certainly this doesn't mean don't we can't overstate this and say that this means he has no sense of humor that's not what it's saying but he understands that the way he lives has eternal consequences he's not living in the moment for the moment thirdly he is to be self-controlled or sensible now, this is the character trait that's to be true of elders in this letter. It's to be true of older men and younger women and older women and younger men. It's to be a trait of all believers. It is the most frequently mentioned characteristic in this chapter. Believers are not to live unto themselves, but are to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Paul writes in Galatians, walk in the Spirit. 
and you will not. And it means you cannot, if you're doing that, gratify the desires of the flesh. One author summarizes, because Paul directed that self-control, sensible behavior, be evident in every believer, he he definitely indicated that it is needed and attainable by all Christians. Isn't this the great challenge of our lives practically? How do I get myself under control? But notice that Paul is saying this is certainly needed, but it's attainable. Maturing means I'm going to get better and better at having self-control. The final three character traits explain that the older men in the church are to be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness. Paul's describing men who have walked with God over time. This is spiritual maturity. Their love for God has deepened over that time. Their trust in Him has grown stronger through trials, through circumstances, through study of the word. And they faithfully endured through the ups and downs of life. That makes them models that we want to follow, that we seek counsel from. One commentator wisely applies in this section, the latter years of life, especially for men, can be filled with regrets. A sense of uselessness or worthlessness, feelings of despair, self-absorption, or even a tendency to relax moral standards. Maybe because they're no longer out in front. However, Paul desired for the older men to have what he desired for himself as he approaches the end of his life. To be able to say, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. This passage teaches us that age does not mean that older men and older women have nothing new to learn. This is encouraging believers, older believers in the body, to keep growing. The character of older people isn't set in stone. Change is still possible and even required. Paul's rejecting the thought that you can't teach an old dog new tricks spiritually. There's still many ways to grow. Until we reach heaven, there's still more more things to learn. More ways to practice godliness. More ways to invest. Psalm 92 verses 14 and 15 speak of older people when it says they will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock. Christians don't get to retire from growing in their faith. At some point, you may cease to be needed at your job. At some point, you may cease to want to have or need to have a full-time job. But in God's church, there is never a time for a believer not to be wanted, not to be needed. Never a time. What Paul is saying here is that in old age, God's people never cease to be needed. And older men and women can never cease to want to contribute to the church. Consider the powerful influence of a godly spiritual man. Fathers especially should work and pray toward this end. John Payton caught his passion for taking the gospel to the primitive New Hebrides Islands because of the passionate prayers his father uttered at the family table. 
When he finally departed for his calling, Peyton shares this exchange he had with his father. He writes, he walked with me the first six miles of the way. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. Peyton would later testify that the memory of this scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from the prevailing sins, but it also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. Perhaps, men, you feel like, I haven't lived like that. But you can show that you can keep growing. By God's grace, we keep pursuing our God and modeling what that looks like. Thirdly, sound doctrine produces godly living among older women. Paul now moves on to older women and demonstrates that they specifically are to have a spiritual mentoring role in the church. Again, here's the principle. Every believer has something to contribute to others' lives. I want you to notice that all of these people that are mentioned are overlapping within the church and interacting together. We say regularly, every member ministry is a priority of our church. This passage, again, affirms that. That's not our idea to have better community. That's God's plan for you. Paul uses the word likewise here at the beginning of his description of their character. They're to share in some of these same characteristics of older men. In addition now to the specific emphasis he's about to give them. We're to all see these virtues as character traits that we're all to possess. These are all parts of the fruit of the Spirit. But now for these ladies, Paul begins with four character traits. Two positive and two negative. First, they are to be reverent or devout. They're to be focused and prioritize their walk with God. They're to see themselves as devoted to God and his service. Consider the example of Anna as she waits at the temple for the arrival of the Messiah. Her life is dedicated to the service of God. It's centered on Christ and devoted to his praise. She's certainly reverent and eager to point others to her king. That's the spirit That's to be included here. Second, they must not be slandering or gossiping about others. The word for slander here is very strong. In the Greek, it is diabolos. The word is used to describe the devil. It's used of the devil, the great slanderer, 34 times in the New Testament. Spreading malicious gossip, whether true or untrue, should not be the work of God's people. There must be self-mastery of the tongue. Next, the older women must not be slaves to much wine. Now, it's possible that this was a problem even for older women in the Cretan culture. Or, as other commentators suggested, it was used for medicine. And some of these ladies were becoming addicted to it. 
They're finally described as teachers of what is good. One author explains that this does not envision formal instruction necessarily, though that's maybe perhaps part of it. But rather, the main idea is that the advice, the advice and encouragement that they give is given privately by word, by example. They're coming alongside of, they're putting their arms around the shoulders of younger women. They're making themselves available. We see that in verse 4 as Paul includes this purpose clause and explains why these, young, why these older women must be pursuing godliness so that they may train the younger women. The principle here is that it is impossible to train others in qualities that a person doesn't possess herself. How do you offer someone something that you don't have? All members of Christ's body still have work to do, growth to pursue. Can you see that Paul is emphasizing that growth in godly character should not be pursued in isolation from service to others in the church? This is his plan for how you grow. We're to proactively seek out ways to encourage, train, and teach one another to walk with God through our particular roles in life. Ligon Duncan writes in his book, Women's Ministry in the Local Church, men and women face different kinds of temptation differently. Thus, the local church needs to address these distinctive temptations of men and women distinctively. And this is one purpose of intentional, deliberate ministry to women in the local church. Susan Hunt, in her excellent book on the subject, Spiritual Mothering, she writes a lot about Titus 2 in this book. She writes, these characteristics indicate spiritual depth and strength. They also imply vulnerability for the older woman. She must be willing to let a younger woman look into her life and learn from it. A woman well acquainted and humbled by God's grace will be eager to embrace this kind of vulnerability and ministry. She's not trying to impress by how put together she is, but by how faithful her God is. Do you have this mindset? Ladies, what should or could this look like in your life? Are you perhaps missing out on a vital ministry that Paul says you need in your life? You need to be engaged in. You need to be pursuing. It may mean that you seek out a spiritually mature older lady and invite her into your home or to coffee once a month, once every other month and open up to her what's going on in your life. I think that'd be a very faithful way to apply this verse, these verses. It may mean that you seek out a younger lady in the church and simply ask her if she would study the Bible with you or study a Christian book that will help you grow in your walk with him. It may simply be that you focus on the younger ladies in the church on a specific day of the week as you pray for other members in our body. How might the Lord encourage you to invest in other ladies in our church family? Susan Hunt concludes, too often today, older women are an untapped resource in our churches, while younger women are searching for Proverbs 31 women who they can emulate. God's answer here solves both 
problems. So number four, sound doctrine produces godly living among younger women. Now what is the focus of the training that older women provide to the younger? They're to help disciple and walk with them through the challenges that they've walked through themselves in daily living. Notice specifically, they're to encourage younger wives in their ministries at home. This is a specific application of sound teaching that the older women are uniquely equipped to provide. They have insight that perhaps nobody else in the church has. Now, there are seven adjectives listed describing the desirable qualities that a younger woman is to pursue. Four of them are focused on marriage and the home. God's word places a high priority on developing godly homes as is seen here in this passage. Love for the husband, love for children can certainly be challenging at times. For some of you mothers, that's a clear understatement, isn't it? But Paul's concerned that a woman's first commitment under the lordship of Jesus Christ was to her husband and her marriage. Every couple should be striving to model for their children what a godly marriage looks like. That's first in the home. Our world tells us that we fall in love. But this passage and others in the New Testament teach us that we must learn to love. We must learn to love one another as Christ has loved us. Consider that for many that would have first heard these words... This is especially true for them because they've been brought together through an arranged marriage. That was certainly the predominant practice of the ancient world. Younger women are to learn to love their husbands and to love their children. A young mother must move beyond natural affection for her children. Christian's love for her children will be reflected in her burden and her drive to point them to Christ, to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They will pray for that as the priority. More than they'll pray for their safety, more than they'll pray for their success, more than they'll pray for their achievements. Most important way a mother can love her children is to continually point them to him. To model before them that she is committed to him first. That her identity is not found in her role, either in the home or outside of it. That's what all godly women can model for those who are younger. Our identity is in Christ first, not in what we have or what the world says that we're to be or we're free to be. In word and deed, she gently, consistently, and with sensitivity demonstrates God's love and grace to them. All of God's people are to take what we heard of Paul in Titus 1.1, I'm a slave of God. I'm bound to him. That's what's being modeled over and over to one another. In verse 5, Paul continues his list. Younger women are to learn to be self-controlled and pure. There it is again, self-control. Just like the rest of God's people, they're to learn self-discipline. For the sake of godliness, to be pure means to be morally pure or chaste and likely expresses Paul's concern for faithfulness in marriage, in thought, 
in word, in deed. It's prioritizing the marriage. Now, the description that they are to be workers at home, what does that mean? What is that saying? Well, it's speaking to the role of the wife to provide care and meet the needs of the family with her unique gifting. We could even say that this phrase means home lover. The phrase indicates an efficient management of household responsibilities. And then it adds kindness, which also indicates a lack of irritability in the light of the ever-present nagging demands of routine household duties. But does it prohibit working outside the home? Is that what Paul's emphasizing? I don't think so. John Stott helpfully states it would, be, it would not be legitimate to base on this word either a stay-at-home stereotype for all women or a prohibition of wives being also professional women. What is rather affirmed is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband and children, she will love and not neglect them. It's telling us what the priorities should be. Lastly, Paul says that younger women are to be learning to be submissive to their own husbands. One author notes this word, own, their own husbands. It delivers the passage from any charge of emphasizing the inferiority of women to men. And it shows that submission is one of function within the intimate circle of the home. This is how the home functions well. Now, unfortunately, today, biblical instructions like these are met with strong emotion, even hesitance, and that's to our own detriment. Certainly, Scripture can be twisted, but it's not up to the world to define for us our roles in the home or in the church. It's easy for us to read these words and think first of our own cultural context rather than considering first their meaning to Paul's audience. Today, the philosophies of our culture are teaching that there is no difference in the sexes, none whatsoever. And equality between them must mean an equality of outcomes in every way. That's to our own hurt. That's dangerous. As commentator H.P. Griffin helpfully states, the Bible demonstrates that the equality of the sexes does not negate the distinctiveness of the sexes. The fact is that God created male and female. Each sex has distinctive features by God's design. Not only physically, but emotionally and psychologically. Such differences are God's wise and good design for the mutual benefit of the other. In the context of the home, wives are called to be submissive to their own Husbands, thus recognizing and accepting a God-given order and responsibility. But notice, the New Testament never calls the husband to demand submission. He calls the wife to give it willingly, freely. The husband's responsibility is to lead gently, sacrificially, and lovingly. Hers is to support encourage and submit willingly certainly this is hard work this is hard work in our homes because we're sinners 
We see all the way back in Genesis 2, one of the first results of the fall is that there's conflict in the roles immediately. Paul tells Eve she's going to strive against that. You're going to want to dominate over him. Adam immediately has surrendered his role of leadership when Eve takes of the fruit and gives it to him because he's with her, not saying a word. Paul's teaching on marriage emphasizes mutual and reciprocal commitment of both husband and wife to an exclusive, intimate, loving, and caring partnership. When this is done well, it is beautiful and encouraging and reflects the glory of God's wise design. When we fail in it, it's discouraging. It steals our hope and it clouds God's glory. The key is that the focus is not to be in, on the other partner. The key for you as you move forward in your marriage with all its flaws, with all its weaknesses, with all its beauty, with all its strength, is to focus on God. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, uh, to the wives, submit to your own husbands. That's not new information to the Ephesian believers. Here's what is, as to the Lord. It's ultimately not about him. It's about him. Do you see? And the same is for husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's not about her. It's about him. Both are to be Christ-centered in understanding their role. Both roles are modeled in Christ. The husband is to love and lead his wife like Christ. Loves and leads his bride, the church, with great tenderness. He's not an authoritarian or dictator. He goes out front. He leads sacrificially and lovingly. The wife is to submit and follow as Christ submitted and followed the will of the Father. Who is the most humbly submissive person in all the New Testament? Isn't it our Christ who gives up the glory, the rights of heaven to become a man? To become an infant? And even singles find their model in Christ. If Jesus Christ willingly takes on these roles and does not find them demeaning or too hard or beneath him, why would we? Isn't it because he was focused on God's mission to love and give himself for sinners? And we so often are focused on our own mission, our own priorities, getting our own way, both husbands and wives, men and women, are to die to self to make Christ the priority of our relationships. Christian marriages and Christian homes, which exhibit a combination of sexual equity and complementarity, beautifully commend the gospel. Those which fall short of this ideal bring the gospel into disrepute. The final phrase of verse 5 says, so that the word of God may not be reviled. How we live in our relationships to one another in the church and to one another in the home has a direct reflection on our God. When we fail to live up to these exhortations, as many in Crete were obviously doing, the word of God was susceptible to ridicule. The word for revile here means to be blasphemed or maligned. So we know he's writing to a church 
to churches that have significant problems. Their houses are being overturned by false teaching that isn't addressing these problems. There's confusion and compromise in these relationships. And yet, Paul is very hopeful in giving Titus the way forward. There's hope for you. Christians, for their part, must take care that they do not, by their own conduct, give cause for blasphemy against God or against his word. So how does your home life reflect the character of God? Do your relationships with your family demonstrate his power to shape and change you? Perhaps you're at a point in your family that's very difficult, and you need to look and believe that the gospel has the power to change what the future will look like. Put your hope in him. You see, we're not just looking for helpful suggestions from the Bible that will give us a better church life experience as older members mentor younger members. We're not just seeking for pragmatic solutions for how our marriages might be more enjoyable and fulfilling for us. We're not the end goal of these instructions. He is. And yet, are you surprised when we find that when we submit and follow to the best of our ability by his grace, our marriages, our church life are more fulfilling then? As we recognize from this instruction that we certainly have work to do, can I encourage you that hope is found in the grace of God? We live with sinners in our homes. We live with sinners in our church. Certainly, we may carry deep scars, but God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient to bear you through those trials, to give you hope, to keep honoring him. It's ultimately not up to whether others respond or not. You can honor and glorify your God by putting your confidence in him and obeying to the best of your ability. So where you have failed, repent of the ways that you're failing to live according to this standard. Admit it to your family, perhaps, where it's needed. Just think of it. Humility before one another always brings hope for change. How can you bring hope for change in your family through humility being expressed? Plead for God's help to change and grow. Lean into the resources he's pointing us to in this passage. Find another mature believer and ask them to pray with you and for you, to bear your burdens with you, to weep where you're weeping, to rejoice where you're rejoicing. Seek out a pastor if you need help, if you have questions about what this passage might mean for you. Husbands and fathers especially, ask your wife and children where you may need to expend a little more spiritual energy. You set the pace. And for all of us, we're to trust God to work in our lives as we seek to obey. Our passage this morning tells us that for God's glory, God's people must know and apply the truth that leads to spiritual health. That applies specifically in our churches and in our families. And the two work together. As believers, we bear the name of Christ and our lives are to demonstrate the reality of that claim. Our manner of living and speaking reflect on the glory and honor of Christ in the eyes of a world that's watching that is often looking for flaws in our lives to excuse the sin in their life. 
our character and conduct matter then for many, many reasons. But the most important of those reasons is that we bear a calling and responsibility to represent our King, our Christ. Our lives, our relationships within our families and our church are not first and foremost for our own pleasure and our own fulfillment. They're for his glory. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you, God's people, are the light of the world. So let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's ask him to do that in us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this text, for the many ways that it challenges us. Lord, perhaps we are disquieted by the ways that we're not living up to this text. I pray that you would give us grace, that you would give us hope, that in the gospel, in the resources of the church, in the resources of your word and in prayer, we can grow There's encouragement for the places where we're discouraged or hurt. Where we're in pain. Where we're frustrated by lack of relationships. Lord, help us to set our eyes on you. Help us to love you. Help us to live for you in our homes and among our church family. In Jesus' name, amen.